Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, welcome to Lathia Church. You probably had no idea you're going to hear that scripture reading this morning. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you are here with us this morning. Uh, parents, if you want to go ahead and dismiss your kids, if you're sending them off with the Alathia Junior Teachers this morning, they'll be over here. Uh, we've got a wonderful time kind of set up for them, so we'd love for um, them to be able to go and enjoy that time this morning. Um, if this is your first time with us or you don't have one yet, uh, we've got some people that would love to give you a free gift. Uh, we give out scripture journals here as free gifts at Alathia Church. So just raise your hand and we'll make sure somebody gets one of those to you. Uh, we want you to have the Word of God in your hands. We want you to be able to take notes. We would just ask that uh, if you go to and check out a gospel community or if you come back with us again, that you just bring it back with you so that you might be able to kind of write down what the Lord's laying on your heart, what you're learning, what you're taking with you. Uh, we believe heavily that God speaks to us from His Word and that we can receive it and we can take notes and that we can learn from it. We can go back and kind of ponder and meditate on what God is teaching us. And so um, we want you to have that. So obviously it goes without saying, I think, if you listened at all during Brent's reading of the scripture this morning, that this morning could be interesting to say the least. Um, let me, let me start off by maybe asking and posing a question to you. I don't need a show of hands. I know oftentimes I ask for like audience participation when I'm asking questions. This question I'm going to ask could potentially make it awkward, so I'm not going to. But I want, I want you to think about this for a second. Okay, if you've ever been involved in church community or a church event for any length of time, how many of you have ever in your experience attending church or going to church went and a married couple at that event did something that made you feel uncomfortable. I heard, I heard mm, right? Okay, let me start with this. We're humans. So married couple, like for, especially there's a lot of single people in the room. Like don't assume married people have all their stuff together. Like we, we, we need Jesus just as much as you do. Okay, but th this can happen quite regularly, as a matter of fact. Maybe the way they talked to one another made you feel uncomfortable. Maybe they got into an open argument. I mean, I've got friends that their love language is arguing. And maybe the husband demeaned or talked down to the wife openly in front of you. Maybe the wife openly talked dishonorably of her husband, tore him down, talked about what an idiot he was. And I, I remember kind of one of my first experiences with this because my, my church experience growing up was nominal at best. I mean, we attended, but that was if sports weren't interrupting because that was our real religion. And when we, we, I, I went to this wedding, and I'll never forget sitting there with my wife, and the pastor begins to talk about Ephesians 5 at this wedding, and a guy sitting near me leans over at the passage on wives submitting to their husbands and leans over with a grin on his face and says, man, that's the really kind of the only good part about being a Christian husband, am I right? With his wife sitting right next to him. Now, bad theology aside <laughs> for this guy, what does that communicate to those around him that heard him say this. What are we to automatically assume about this man's character? The way he thinks and approaches his walk with the Lord? And maybe if you're, and this is common at weddings, 
someone who's not a follower of Jesus and you hear a statement like that, what does that make you think of Jesus? And what he has to say about the way husbands and wives relate to one another, the way the church relates to one another, the way we pursue him openly. I mean, and, and like, honestly, I was shell-shocked. I was like, dude, who does this guy think he is? You know, and I was just young enough to almost want to go like holy roller on him for a minute, but I didn't want to ruin the wedding. And luckily Jackie had been like, uh-uh, now's not the time. No, restraint. But the way that we show honor to one another, the way we treat one another, first of all, has been abundantly clear over the last several chapters of 1 Corinthians. But specifically inside of how husbands and wives communicate this to one another really, really matters to God. And our text this morning is a, is, is a hard passage. It's difficult sometimes to be able to comprehend and parse out the themes of what Paul is teaching, the practical side of what Paul is teaching and where that applies today. You know, we're some 2,000 years almost removed from what Paul's talking about here. So this passage can be confusing. So let me kind of just lay this out. First and foremost, at Aletheia Church, we study books of the Bible together, verse by verse, line by line, which means if I was preaching what I wanted to preach, we would just skip chapter 11. Just straight up and be like, all right, we're going to chapter 12 this morning. Good to see you guys. And everybody like, hey, I thought there was an 11th chapter in 1 Corinthians. Well, there is, but I don't want to deal with it. So y'all read that and figure it out on your own. We don't do that here. Right, so we're going to dive into this text this morning. I would ask that you be patient with me. I'm going to do my best to explain kind of what the context is of what's going on and try to kind of apply it. But some of you may have questions throughout this that may not get answered until the end. Now, if they don't get answered, if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, okay, I had this question pop up while Kevin was talking about this. He never answered it. Um, Feel free to see me afterwards. I would love to clarify anything or talk about anything with this on this passage with you. Like open book, would love to talk about it. If you have any complaints, see Pastor Daniel. <laughs> he would love to answer any anger or complaints you have. He'll, he'll be in the back at your leisure after service. Jokes aside, um, I think God actually has something kind of like really, really important for us to see here this morning. I, I really believe that. I think that there are some key things that that God wants us to see because Paul at this point in his letter to the church at Corinth is shifting kind of the focus of his letter from dealing with the relational unity and issues just kind of in general inside the church to focusing on relational unity inside of the corporate worship gathering, kind of what we're doing here this morning. So if the last several chapters have focused on unity and friendship and relationships amongst the body of Christ, the next several chapters are going to be talking about relational unity, harmony, and like orderly worship so as to make much of Jesus, encourage one another, and encourage those outside of the church who may come into the church community, and that this type of stuff matters. And so our text this morning, though, is actually Paul answering some very specific questions that the church in Corinth had for him on gender issues, dress, and the way that the worship service was supposed to look. And after reading through this passage, there are going to kind of be a number of key takeaways this morning. There's kind of like three big things I think Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand. And so let me share those with you because otherwise 
we'll get bogged down in some of like the, the weeds of like the cultural things that were going on inside this church. And I really think the more important thing to take away are some of these key ideas that Paul is presenting, right? So the first one is this, God has a design for you in your gender. What I mean by that is God created you male or female, and there's a reason why he did that. And you have a unique role and position and function as a human being, male or female, that is designed to reflect the nature and character of God. We'll dive more into that in just a minute, but this is really, really important to understand. The second one is this, authority and showing honor are really, really important to God. That God cares deeply about that. He cares that we do that with one another, and he especially cares that husbands and wives do that for one another. And then the last one would be this, we actually need one another. And we'll see that at the end of this passage, but I think that point right there is really, really timely for us in 2022. Because we have a propensity to believe that we are self-sufficient, that things we can figure things out on our own, that we don't need other people, that we can do life. I think COVID may have shown some of us that that's not true. But I have a sneaky suspicion that as we come out of the pandemic, whenever and wherever that might be, that we're going to run back to what was familiar and we're going to run back to this notion and this cultural idea that we can just do things on our own and we don't need one another. And Paul is saying in this text this morning that God actually designed us to need one another. So go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we're just going to kind of move through the text kind of at our own pace this morning, trying to explain things and work through things. And we'll see if we can't land this thing to really make some sense and be encouraged on how we might love one another well inside the corporate worship gathering, especially those that are married. All right, verse two. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. All right, so he starts off by commending them, which is basically his way of saying, hey, thank you for asking me my opinion on these issues. That's basically what he's saying there. And the, the, the questions they had asked him uh, were the following. They said, he, basically, Corinth messaged Paul, sent him a letter or whatever else and said, hey, should men wear any sort of head covering in church? And on the flip side, should women be required to wear a head covering in church? Now, most of you guys aren't going to write a letter to people about that, but this was something that they were dealing with culturally in Corinth in the, first, in, for, in the first century. And so Paul's response to them here, starting in verse two, is, hey, the answer to your questions is to remember what I taught you and keep those traditions. And he basically says, like, hey, I want to commend you. I've heard that you guys are doing kind of what I taught you and, and what, what had been done when I was there leading you and was in person. Um, and, and if you're like, well, what did he teach? We'll see that in just a minute. But the big point that Paul is kind of getting across here is, hey, I'm really glad you asked me my opinion on this because the way that you interact with one another, you can either approach God and his word and seek to honor him and interact with one another the way that God wants you to, or you can get your cues from culture. And culture is a bad place to learn how we interact with one another. 
Culture is a bad place to learn what God wants. Tends to not be the same over the course of time. And we can use this and apply this concept to many topics, but in particular, this this topic on gender and how husbands and wives are to relate and how there's supposed to be an order in the corporate worship gathering. Paul's basically saying, hey, it's a really good idea that you messaged me and asked me about this and didn't just like walk out to the temple of Artemis or go down and, and ask one of the Greek philosophers how we should approach this, that we need to kind of seek God's word and see what he has to say about this. And then look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he congratulates them. He commends them. He tells them to kind of continue in the tradition that they've been doing. So he says, hey, you are actually doing things the way that I taught you. He says, but I want you to understand that what I taught you was not just a practice concerning head coverings or dress, but the impetus behind why I taught you to do it that way was actually deeply theological. That there was actually a reason behind it. That when I was in Corinth, I taught a theology of submission and honor to be shown to one another and to God. And this ties into that theology that I taught you. That when I taught you on God's design for your gender and honoring God in that, this is tied into that. When I taught you about the Trinity and how the Trinity is in perfect community with itself and how there's honor and submission and deference shown in the very Godhead of our God and creator, that he shows honor and submission to authority in the Godhead and that we do the same with one another so that we might be like our king. That is the impetus behind the tradition that we're talking about here with to wear head coverings or not. Not just, hey, we just do that because that's what we do, but there's actually a reason behind what I've been showing you. And then what he shares there in verse three is what theologians commonly refer to as functional submission. And Paul teaches on something, this idea of functional submission being biblical. And he mentions three ways that submission to authority plays out, right? So the first one he shares, he says that Jesus is the head over every man. And I'm not gonna go into a ton of depth on that word head because there's been a lot of debate over the years what that term means. Guys, here's what it means. It means authority, From the context of what's going on there and from the other things that Paul says throughout his epistles, it's abundantly clear to me that when Paul says Jesus is the head of every man, he's saying that Jesus has authority over mankind, that Jesus is our functional head. This, by the way, is easy to see. Turn over really quick with me to Romans chapter 5. And let me read a couple verses for you because we need, we'll understand this a little bit more in just a minute because I'm going to go back to creation and talk about how this works itself out. But look at what Paul says about Adam and Jesus. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, 
but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anybody have a full understanding of what Paul's talking about there? Right here, Here's basically what he's saying. This is the idea of what in, in, in theological circles would be known as federal headship, right? And basically what Paul is saying is it is abundantly clear that because of the sin of Adam, all of us are under the curse of disobedience. All of us are in sin because of the sin of our first father, Adam. And we'll see in just a minute that that was partially because of the way God designed creation and because of sin and disobedience and rebellion. Adam's sin and disobedience led all into sin and disobedience, Right? But he's saying that Jesus' work, his life, death, burial, and resurrection caused him to replace and be the new and better Adam and that we are under that head now and that for those that are in Christ are no under, under Adam's headship, but we are under Christ's headship. And so when we go back then to 1 Corinthians 11, what we see then is Paul saying to men, look, you were under Adam, now you're under Christ. And in that you submit to him, you follow him and you honor him. And as a man, you learn to, you must learn to figure out what it means to be a guy after Christ's heart, to seek and honor him, that you submit yourself to him. This means that if you're a guy in here this morning and you're like, I'm going to do things my own way. I want to be my own man. I want to do things my way. God's like, you don't get what it means then to be a follower of Jesus. Because a godly man doesn't just lead and place himself out in the front and do things. No, he places himself under the lordship of Christ. And in that lordship, Jesus teaches us things like submitting to elders and leaders and teachers and other people in our lives as well. Meaning that it's not just, hey, well, Jesus is my Lord, but I'm still running and doing things on my own. No, it means you are submitting yourself to being examined, to being accountable, to being under authority, to receive correction and reproof 
so that you might honor your God and your king. Right? It's easy to read this passage and think, okay, the ladies get the short end of the stick in this passage and think that the guys don't really have to do anything. And that is not at all what Paul is saying. He's like, men, get your butt to church, submit your life to Christ, and fall underneath the leadership of godly men who want what's best for you. That's what this looks like. And so he, he shares what it looks like for the men, and then he moves on and he says this, right? He says, the husband is the head over the wife. I'm gonna get to that in a little bit more in just a minute, but that in God's design, right, there is a, an, a pecking order of authority inside of the family unit. And that should extend into the corporate worship gathering that husbands and wives are to live in this way and that wives are supposed to honor their husbands, not just in the home, but outside the home as well, and especially inside the corporate worship gathering, right? And then in verse three, or in the third part of that verse, he says that God, the Father, is head over Jesus. And I know some of you are thinking, you're like, well, wait a minute, Jesus is God. Like, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that the Father has authority over the Son? Look at John chapter six, verse 38. This is Jesus's own words. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but who? The will of him who sent me. Meaning that Christ himself willingly submitted to the will of the Father, that there was deference given to him. And by that, he secured our salvation by following the plan of the Father. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit's role in all this as well. But inside of the Trinity, there is functional submission. The Father submits, uh, excuse me, the Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits and comes alongside as the helper. And Jesus gives deference to the Spirit. He actually tells his disciples later on, like, you want me to leave. You, you want the Holy Spirit and the helper to come. Like, this is a good thing for you. That there is honor and glory and deference given in the Godhead. And the same idea needs to transfer over into our churches as we show honor and give deference to one another. And so Paul's big point here in verse three is that submission and showing honor are built in to God's design for men and women. Now, I'm gonna try to go slowly and speak clearly through this next part because I know that as I'm saying all of this, our culture and what a lot of us have experienced, both from what we've been taught in school, what we've been taught by the world around us, what our own hearts desire pushes back on a lot of what was just said. Maybe it's hurt and trauma that you've experienced over the years. Maybe it's not having this modeled for you well. Maybe it's people lording it over you. Especially the part when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, the cultural view is going to immediately push back on that. And so what I want to do is I want to take a second and I want to just unveil to you, right, that there are kind of just three prevailing views on gender and how they interact with one another. And there's going to be some variance in between these three, but all of us likely walked into this room this morning with one of these three views, right? The first one is feminism, 
right? And what feminism says is that men and women are equal in all ways. They're equal in role. They're equal in function. They're equal in purpose. They're equal in value. And, and, and so therefore, there should be no distinction between men and women. And men and women should do all the same things and should be pushed to do all the same things. And, and most of us in this room, likely that is the cultural background that you came from. That is likely what is being taught to you in school. It's likely the prevailing theme of what's being taught to you in your home. Uh, the kind of the biblical uh, take on this would be called egalitarianism, where there is no distinction between men and women inside of the scripture. And so everything is equal and there is no distinction between the roles of men and women. And I would just say this. There are some things about egalitarianism that are true. But there are some things about it that I think are outside of the bounds of what God's actually teaching us in his word. Now, if you didn't come in with some of you guys are like, I'm not familiar with that or I reject that term. Some of you may have come in or come from a background like this, chauvinism. Right. And chauvinism actually teaches that men are superior to women. That men are superior in function, role, power, and that ev- and in every way women are less than and they should therefore be subordinate to men because men are a superior species to women. This is commonly referred to from a biblical standpoint as patriarchy or a patriarchal view of approaching gender in scriptures. Guys, I would submit that both of those two roles that I just mentioned are not what scripture teaches. Now, there are churches and there are theological di- traditions that hold to those two things, but I would submit to you that they do not present what scripture actually teaches about the roles of men and women. The third one is known as complementarianism. And, and what I would refer to as biblical complementarianism. And let me just say, some of you heard that word and you're automatically like, oh, I don't like that. I would say that most of what gets rejected as complementarianism in my experience is actually chauvinism masquerading with the word complementarianism. Most of the time, people reject this idea of biblical complementarianism, not because they don't like complementarianism, but it's the people presenting it are actually presenting chauvinism and claiming that it's complementarianism. But what biblical complementarianism would teach us is that men and women are equal in value and worth because they're created in the image and likeness of God, but they are different and how they go about displaying that glory. That men and women are given different designs, roles, purposes, and functions, not because one is better than the other or one is less than the other, but because God has designed them to do different things to display his glory. And in that, if we function and work towards God's design, we'll see a greater worship of Jesus and experience more joy in our lives. See, culture would say to us that gender is nothing but a social construct and that we can make it and evolve it into whatever we want it to be. And here's just what I would submit back to that, because I've heard that argument, especially on university campuses now for going on 15 years. God made humans. Humans make culture. Who are you interested in trusting? 
right? At the end of the day, when we start dealing with these hard issues that press up against our culture, we need to ask ourselves, do we want to trust the culture's view on this or do we want to trust the creator's view on this? And as we approach this, right, let me take you just for a second to the creation story about why I think God reveals complementarianism as the way that he designed this. Right, if you go back to Genesis 1, right, you see God, uh, the, 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 the garden has been created, right, all this is going on, and then you see God say, let us make man in our image and likeness, and then it says male and female, he created them. Right? And you see that God places Adam in the garden as the representative head. And when he places Adam in the, the garden, he kind of gives this mandate right, where he tells him to rule and have authority the way that he would. Basically, right, when Adam was placed in the garden, he, he created him and he said, look, you are to function and rule and subdue earth as if I were the one doing it. That's your job. You are to mimic me. You are to be my image. You are to rule my kingdom as if it was me doing it. And then as we're there and Adam's, the animals are being brought before Adam and Adam, I don't know if he was depressed or what was going on, but it's not, you, God sees that there's this issue, right? And every time at the end of a day of creation before this day, right, you see God looking at things. He's like, that's good. I nailed it. It's good. And you see Adam alone in the garden doing this work. And what does he say? It's not good. It's not good. And so he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And as Adam goes to sleep, he fashions out of Adam's rib woman and he sets her in the garden. And he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, ladies, right? We hear that word helper and immediately, right? I was talking to my wife about this last night right? If we use the term helper in 2022 to describe the role of a female, kind of sounds demeaning, right? Kind of sounds like less than. I assure you that is not what scripture is teaching. That word helper in the, in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of it, is the exact same term that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, so if you look and say, well, hey, God created me to be a helper, that seems like less than. Well, that would be the same thing as saying, well, the Holy Spirit seems to be like less than God. The Holy Spirit doesn't really matter. That would be what you would be having to say in your understanding of the genders. Right? What God is basically saying here is that woman was taken out of man as a helper, not the help. Right? My wife made this very clear to me last night. She's like, hey, when, when a woman hears being called a helper, they immediately hear that they're the help. They're the servant. They're the slave. They're the one that's supposed to be doing all these things. That is not what God is saying here. Right? What God is saying is that there is something about men and the way that he created them that without woman present in the world, we would not be able to function and fulfill the design and mandate that God made for human beings. It's not possible. Meaning, men, we need women. We need their voice. We need their opinions. We need their skill set. We need the gifts that they bring. And ladies, I know it is really, really popular now, especially on TV or whatever else. I mean, if you watch a sitcom, is there a single sitcom where the father is presented as being competent? 
everything being taught to us. Oh, the mom's holding the whole family together. The husband's a loser or whatever else. And we've just kind of grown to accept that as being culturally acceptable. And scripture would say, nope. Women, we need men. That both are equal in the eyes of God. And in that, right, we uniquely reflect God's character and value and worth. And so God creates Eve. He takes her out of man. And then you see God say this. Okay, it's good. It is good. We've got it sorted now. And men are supposed to love like God, lead like God, serve like God. And women come alongside leading, loving, pursuing, showing honor. And both are created to show the glory of God when functioning in their created roles. Now, it's easy to talk about what it's supposed to look like. Right, because I'm up here, I'm like, this is God's design, it's great, it's awesome. And all of us are like, it doesn't work like that, dude. Like, have you seen the world? And I would say yes, because of Genesis 3. Right, we see in Genesis 3 that sin happens and that design is now marred and broken. That sin has corrupted what men are supposed to do in the eyes of God and how they're supposed to live, that in the same way that sin has marred and destroyed the image of of women and how that's supposed to work in the song and dance of God's creation. And so when we say, well, that doesn't work, we say, well, yeah, it doesn't work, but it's not because it's wrong, it's because of sin. We we, We don't reject the design we reject instead our sin and our propensity not to follow God's design. Right? It's not as if, oh, well, the design's messed up, so God just needs to hit the reset button. Let's figure out something new for him. We take a step back and we say, hey, are are we actually living out God's design? Are we actually pursuing this to the glory of God? And Paul's saying here in verse 3 that men are, are under authority and in authority just like Jesus was. And that women are under the authority of their husbands and in authority. Because by the way, this does not mean that women you can never lead or do anything. He's just talking about specific instances inside of the church like Jesus was. And that this design a functional submission is Paul's entire reasoning behind this teaching on dress and head coverings and the questions that the church at Corinth had for him. And so let's, now that we've gotten kind of the foundation out of the way, let's plow through the specifics that they were dealing with in Corinth. Look at verse four with me. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So a common practice inside of pagan temples in Corinth and in the Greek world or Roman world would have been that men would cover their head to worship in the temples. And basically what Paul is saying, hey, don't worship like them. If you've seen them do that, that's not what God wants. If, you, if you've ever read the Old Testament, pretty much if you see the culture doing something to worship one of their gods, God wants the opposite. Like every time Israel entered into the land, it was basically God saying to Moses, 
do not worship me like the people there. Don't do it. I don't want that. I don't like that. I want you to worship me in this way. And so basically what Paul's saying is, hey guys, keep your head uncovered as a sign of submission and honor to Jesus. If any, you guys in the South know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Your grandfather probably told you at some point in time, take your hat off when you get into church, boy. Right, because some 2,000 years later, this, this idea is still holding true. That there was a cultural notion taught inside the church that is in the DNA of the church, the body of Christ, that there is something about a man taking his hat off or not having his head covered when he enters into a church. But the bigger theme of what Paul wants us to see is that, men, the way we dress and carry ourselves matters and how we show honor to God, and we should think about that. And then he moves into verse five. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay. So married women whose heads were uncovered was a sign of dishonor in this culture. Right. What, what, was, what was happening was is that head coverings were basically a sign of marriage, the same way that wearing a wedding band today is a sign of being married. Right? And so if you were married and your head was uncovered in public or especially in a corporate worship gathering like church, some scholars even believe that you were suggesting to the men around you that you were sexually available. And so the point of what Paul's trying to get across here is that a wife should be wearing a head covering inside the church in the worship gathering as a cultural sign that she is married and she is underneath her husband's leadership and that they are married and in love with one another. The same way that for some reason a shaved head showed the same thing in this culture, but the idea behind all of this was that ladies, especially if you're married, the way that you dress matters to God in some way, shape, or form in the way that you show honor to your husband, the same way that the way that men dress shows honor to God in some way, shape, or form. And some of this might be cultural, it's cultural, and some of it might not. He's like, hey, in light of what we talked about in our design for gender, this matters here. And then he says this in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. All right, here we go. All right, so let's start with this. That word glory there, translated in the Greek, basically kind of means this, one who shows the excellence of something or someone. Okay, so when we bring that back then, let me start with the guys, right? Because that's who Paul addresses first. Right, here's what Paul's saying to us, guys. By not covering our head, by choosing to honor God's design and the way that we live our lives, we show our submission to Jesus and honor to God as the head or authority in the home, especially if you're married. Let me break this down a little bit more. Right, guys, he's saying to you, you matter. Your life matters. You matter to God. The world needs you. The world needs your gifts. The world needs your talents. The world needs 
the, the knowledge and wisdom that you might have. And, and, and more than the world, the church needs it. The church needs your leadership, your service. If you want your life to matter, you submit yourself to Jesus and then you lead others to him. And you use your gifts and your life to do so. And you take charge. You lead. Now, this doesn't mean like it's like a military commander, right? Anytime you hear leadership, you think it's someone barking orders. Guys, some of the best leaders I had on teams growing up in sports were the quietest ones in the locker room. But you know what they did? They followed the coach. They played with integrity. They did what they were supposed to do. They never yelled at people. They didn't scream at people. And we followed them. Why? Because they were an example to all of us. There are men in this church that will never stand on this stage, who will never preach a sermon, who may never lead a Bible study, who may never lead a discipleship group, who may never lead a breakout discussion, but they are an integral part of what God is doing here, and they are leaders just as much as anybody else because of the way they carry themselves, the way they live their lives, and the way they serve others like their Savior did. Leadership is not yelling and lording things over people. It's serving and following the example of Jesus. And so, men, when God calls us to leadership and authority inside of the church, he's not calling us to lording things over people and leading things as a slave master. No, he's calling us to lay down our lives to serve and lead others to Jesus, to lead like he did. And he says, you want to live a life that, that matters? You do this, and it brings glory to God. And it makes much of your king and your savior. Now, ladies, then he says this. He says, for you, he says that, that you, especially if you're married, right? Because predominantly, he's, he's talking to married women here. That you show glory and honor to your husbands, and that when you do that, that brings honor to God. And this inevitably leads to the question, right, for all the single ladies in here. Now I've got that Destiny's Child song stuck in my head. Thanks, Beyonce. Must I be married to be able to display the glory of God? No. Right? You are excellent in your existence, right? Go back to Genesis. Male and female, he created them in his image and likeness, right? You display the glory of God. But if you are married, if you've come up alongside, right, as a helper, a paraclete, right, in the Greek, right? Displaying the Holy Spirit functionally. Like, think about that for a minute. Ladies, if you're married and you're honoring God well, you are actually displaying the character and nature of the Holy Spirit visibly to the world around you. Like, that is, that is, that is your job. It's not given to anybody else. It's given to you. Like, what an honor. How important is that? that you show the glory of God by honoring your husband. Let me give you an example of this. As you guys know, I have two kids, two boys. And constantly with our kids, I have a propensity to kind of rule the home with a, a firm grip, as I would describe it, right? Like, I'm in charge, 
do what I say right now. And little boys don't always like that. And we'll buck up against that and push back against that. And, and kind of the, the way I grew up and the way that this was taught with me is that when, when they push back, you double down. Right? And you display the authority in any way you need to. And my wife is such a gift to me, guys. Right? She has patiently with me over the years with, our, with my sons. Right? Never usurped my authority. Never dishonored me in front of the kids. Even if I was doing something stupid, right, she'll kind of like let me stew in it. Then she'll come alongside right, and she'll be like, hey, look, I, I hear you. You know, just, Josiah's being difficult right now, you're right. And, and what you're telling him to do is right. But I think you ought to approach him this way. I think you ought to, love, I think you ought to show him love. I think you ought to figure out why he's freaking out. I think you ought to figure out why he's having a meltdown instead of just yelling at him to get his act together. I think you ought to go into that space and meet him. And, and here's the deal. As Jackie's come alongside me and helped me, and guys, in, in all reality, led me at times to who I'm supposed to be, here's what it's meant for our family. We've, we've been able to not have a home that's, heavy-handed with a lot of respect for authority, but there's actually love for one another. There's true respect and deference for one another. My kids are, are learning what it means to be under respect and authority, but not just mine, but under God's. And to love him and, and, and identify their need for him. And the results of that are a better family dynamic. Children being known, who, who know Jesus and love him, who trust their parents and love them. And that doesn't happen just because Kevin's the leader and the authority know it. It's because Kevin and Jackie together, seeking to live the way that God has asked them to, get to live this out and see the fruit of that. Now, ladies, just, just as a, maybe a, as a note or an aside here, right? one of the maybe dangers that you can fall into is that when you, you think you're helping, but you're not, right? Two, two kind of like dangers where this can kind of happen is, as Jackie sa says to me, Women are usually naturally gifted as mothers. That doesn't mean you're going to be a mother, but like God has kind of like naturally gifted you and designed you to be able to mother well. Sometimes that works with your friends when you just give good advice and are there for them and walk them through things. Sometimes that manifests itself as actually being a mom and taking care of kids and raising them. I always say like the human race is doomed if it was guys only. And here's how I know. If you've ever been around a baby that's starting to learn to talk around age one, right? Every time I've seen this, and I know this is anecdotal, I, there's nothing scientific about this observation, but I think it's true. Watch the way the mom interacts with that child as it's learning how to talk and watch the dad. The baby will do something like this, ba, 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 and here's the dad's response, ba, 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 ba. And the mom will do something like this, a ba, ba, bottle, a ba, ba, ball, ba, ba, baby. Right, the mom's teaching. 
dudes, we, re- we like revert back to our animal instincts. And if it was on us, the whole universe, like we all are going, blah, 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 blah. Some, one of you guys, by the way, is like a sociologist or like in something at the university. Please do this study and prove me right on this. Right? But it's hardwired, right, in, into you by God to do this, that you mother well. Right? You, you can do the same even in di- discipleship with, with women in the church and other people in the church that you care about them and there's this motherly instinct to care for them and love for them, uh, have love for them and to protect them. Right? And he, it, here's where that could go wrong. Right? When you get married to your husband, he married you to be his wife, not his mom. Right? We leave and cleave. Right? And so we have to calibrate this. Right, and learn, how do, how do I come alongside? How do I help? How do I lead and, and, and encourage my husband to repent? And husband's the same for you, for your wife. But do it as a spouse, not as a parent. And we do that by showing honor to one another the way that God has designed us. Because our lives matter. God's design and gender matters. And when we submit to God and his design, we make much of him. Now look at verse 10 with me. It says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All right, anyone want to take a shot at this? All right, two, two quick possible explanations for what Paul's talking about in this verse, okay? And I am not convinced of, of either one. I'm leaning one way, but I'm not sure. The word angel literally translated just means messenger. And there were messengers that went from church to church to, to, to take letters, to take notes to one another, to, to bring gifts if they needed help. And so basically, Paul could be saying, hey, the way that you show honor and respect to one another inside the church, if you have a messenger from outside the church, from another church that shows up and you're not doing this, it's going to create drama amongst all the churches. And so show honor and respect to one another because this matters not just for your local church in Corinth, but the other churches that send messages and messengers and visit. That's one possible explanation. Okay. The other possible explanation is angelic beings. If you know anything about angelic beings, there were many, many of them with the Lord in the heavens, and then about a third of them rebelled. They decided, we don't want to follow God anymore. We don't want to submit to his authority anymore. We don't want to, we don't want to be under God's authority anymore. So we're going to rebel, and we're going to follow this dude, Satan. Bad call. Right? And God cast them out. And so it could mean that angelic beings look upon us as we gather on Sunday mornings and as when we gather as the church and, and the way we treat one another and show honor one another and the way we show respect in the corporate worship gathering actually matters because they're looking on us. There you go. I don't know which one it is. Good luck. I think it might be the first one, but I'm not 100% on that one. But let's wrap this up. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as man was made, as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with, with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. All right. 
here, here's basically what Paul's saying in those verses. He's, he's, he says, this practice, this tradition that I'm giving you on head coverings is not meant to be a denigration of women or to force them into subordination. This is not me trying to affirm chauvinism because both genders display the glory of God. They just display it differently and how they operate and how God created them. As a matter of fact, men and women are interdependent on one another, and this is a good thing in how God has designed his church and his people. To be all that God has called us to be, we need each other. That's why it's called complementarianism, that we complement one another. We work well together. We complement one another in our roles, and to do that, we need to show honor to one another. Let me, let me give you one last example of this. How many of you guys played sports growing up? And we're, like team sports, I guess I should say. Okay. I'm going to use football because I think it's the most obvious one. But football is a complementarian sport. Anyone that's ever played football knows exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. We tend to, right, love the quarterback, love the running back, love the wide receiver, right? We tend to like focus on one position. But at any given time, there are 22 people on a football field and all 22 of them have a different role and purpose on each and every play in a football game. And if one person doesn't do their job, guess what? The play fails. This is why all the time when you see athletes and see like the media talking to them and they'll talk about how great they are, especially the quarterbacks, what do the, quarter, what do the good quarterbacks usually do? Oh man, my offensive line was great today. They were awesome. Did you see them? Oh man, like, did you see how my receivers got open today? They're fantastic. Because people in football don't win games by themselves. But when you have 11 people working together and knowing what their role and knowing what their job is, guess what? They storm down the field and they punch it in. Hopefully the Gators will do that better this season. Yes and amen? Amen. Right? That, that is complementarianism played out for us. Works the same way in basketball, right? It can work in so many different areas. It works well in a business. And God's design is for that, for the family and for the church of God. To live inside of these roles and make much of him. Look at verse 16 with me. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Inclined to be contentious. <laughs> Sound familiar? Look, like a lot of what I've said this morning is not popular. I, I, I get it. I, I am not going to win any popularity contests after this message. Let me just say this. Human beings, we, we love ourselves. And since the Enlightenment, if you've studied human history at all, we love ourselves even more than we did pre-Enlightenment. We think we're smarter than we've ever been. We think we know everything. And the, the more we learn and we study, the more we think that we're smarter than God is and that we don't need his design and we don't need his commands and we don't need his rules and we don't need his authority. And I would submit to you that one, human beings have a track record of creating more problems than solving them. 
Don't believe me, study history. I'm not going to point anything out in particular, but that just kind of tends to be the way that it is. And that to deny God's design for us is to lose our very identity and reason for being here. Because if Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are, are correct, and they're true, and that God designed this, to reject it is to, is, is to deny your very existence for why you're here. On like the most foundational level, it's to deny your existence. And Paul says, this is how the church of God should operate when gathered. To submit to God's design, to show honor to one another. Husbands, to submit to Jesus, to lead and love well like Jesus did. This means get in community, love and serve your family, submit to godly leadership. And when you fail to do that, you repent, you get back up, you keep going and you follow Jesus because he's forgiven you and loved you and says, go after it again. Wives, you can submit to Jesus. And one of the ways you can display that is by honoring your husbands. You do not have to wear a head covering to do so, in my opinion. If you feel convicted after this message today that you need to wear a head covering, don't let me bind your conscience. You do what you need to do to honor your husband and love him well, because that will make much of Jesus. And in honoring your husband, you build him up, you encourage him, you honor him in front of others. And ladies, let me just tell you something. I, I, I'm kind of known for, as like a personality standpoint that I don't care what people think of me or say about me, but man, my wife's word matters. Like it matters a lot. All you guys could come up here at the end of the day and talk to me and be like, your message stunk, you're terrible. You have no idea what you're talking about. I'd be like, okay, cool. I, I spent dozens of hours on this, but yeah, please tell me more. <laughs> if Jackie comes up and lays into it, it's going to hurt. Right? Because it matters. The way you love your husband and honor him matters. And, and guys, by the way, same goes for you. Because you're called to honor your wife by loving her like Christ does. Ladies, you honor your husband, you build him up, and that honors God. And here's the deal. If your husband is a loser and he's not doing the very basic things that Paul's talking about, don't air the dirty laundry. Don't scream about him. Don't... Come and talk to one of the leaders here. Right? Get help. We're here, we're here for you. We want, we want to help. Husbands, same for you with your wives. Or we honor one another. And if we observe God's design and make much of him in honoring one another, we will make Jesus look beautiful to a world around us that doesn't know him. I can promise you that. Because the world is starving to figure out how to make relationships work. It's starving for that. And if we do this well, not perfectly, guys. I'm, this is me standing up here saying, hey, I've got it all figured out. Follow me. That's not what I'm saying. But God does. And if we follow his design, we'll make much of him.